everyone, and welcome back to Beyond the Veil. I'm your host, Madison Ford. Our episode today is an interview with Benjamin Marshall. Benjamin is a Harry Potter fan, a father, and the survivor of a suicide attempt. He got very candid with me about his experiences and how wand carving, therapy, and writing have all played a part in his mental health world. I've marked the time of some of the more difficult parts of this episode in our show notes, but there is a trigger warning, a blanket trigger warning for this whole episode. Suicide is mentioned throughout, so please take care of yourself and feel free to skip over this episode if you need. Before we get into the interview, I want to talk to everyone for a moment about suicide. It could be difficult to have these discussions. This is a really heavy topic, and some people are afraid that talking about suicide might increase the chance that whoever's having the conversation will want to make an attempt. According to Colleen Carr, director of the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention, the evidence has clearly demonstrated that talking about suicide does not cause suicide. Instead, talking openly about suicidal thoughts and feelings can increase hope and help someone on their journey to recovery. That being said, if this discussion is pushing you past your boundary or out of your comfort zone, please feel free to skip it. You get to decide where your limits are. There are almost always multiple causes of suicide. Mental disorders and or substance abuse issues have been found in up to 90% of people who have died by suicide. That being said, there are treatment options available for these issues, medications, therapy, and so much more. You can recover and lead a fulfilling life after a suicidal crisis or attempt. In this episode, Benjamin and I have an open and honest conversation about how suicide and mental health issues have affected his life. This is his personal experience, and every individual is going to have a unique experience. Yours may and probably is different, and that's okay. There's no right or wrong here. In this interview, I hope our conversation can shed a little light on the experience of someone who survived a suicide attempt and maybe help some of you feel a little less alone in the world. As you'll see if you listen to the interview, it really is possible to recover and lead a fulfilling life after an attempt. That being said, if you're currently in crisis, please reach out to someone. There are resources for you. You can talk to someone you can trust, or you could call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Again, everyone, please take care of yourselves. And now, let's dive into this episode. Welcome back to Beyond the Veil, everybody. Today, we are speaking with Benjamin Marshall. Benjamin, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is a pleasure. Absolutely. Um, Let's get started and have you tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I wanted to say one thing at the very beginning. I think it's cool. Today was five years since they opened the Harry Potter world in Orlando, and it was 19 years ago today that Goblet of Fire came out. So I thought that was pretty cool that I got to do the podcast when both of those anniversaries are happening. So wow, yeah. Anyway, I'm I'm a geek. You guys know that. So, <laughs> um, so moving on. Uh, yeah, I'm Benjamin Marshall. I'm originally from Seattle. Um, I spent 20 years there. I've lived in most of the Western states since then. Just kind of bounced around. 
um, before ending up in Las Vegas, where I've lived now for a few years. Um, I'm a speech-language pathologist. I work in a hospital with people with uh, stroke, dementia, Parkinson's, neurological disorders, things like that. It's a very rewarding work. Um, I'm a musician. I play a few instruments, and I'm currently drumming in a band, which is a lot of fun. Um, I've been married for almost 14 years. In fact, in two weeks, we'll be celebrating 14 years. And oh yeah, we're pretty excited. Um, we're actually going to be in Seattle for that, so that'll be cool. Uh, we have four children. They are the most beautiful things in the world. Um, and I know I'm biased because I'm their dad, but they really are. Um, their house, so I'm, I'm a Slytherin. I know we'll get to that in a second, my, my other stuff, but I, I have to represent my family's houses here. So my wife is a proud Ravenclaw. Um, my oldest is, I have three boys and a little girl. The oldest is uh, Gryffindor. Then my next one is a Hufflepuff. My next one is a Gryffindor. And then my little girl is only four, so we haven't decided. But I've decided that she's pretty much a perfect mix of all four houses. She's got a little, a few traits of all four, and she's just phenomenal. So that's pretty fun. Wow, a little bit of every house in your family. That's amazing. We do. We have a little bit of everything. And I'm the only Slytherin, and I, I take that. Uh, I'm, I'm very proud about that. <laughs> so um, I know my wife kind of married into being a geek. She was not a geek at all. Um, there was one time when we were watching Jay Leno in particular. I remember he was going door to door and knocking on people's houses and just saying, Hey, I'm Jay Leno. What are you guys doing? And talking to people. And he knocked on this one apartment, and they opened the door, and they were all dressed like Harry Potter characters. And so he was invited in and said, what are you guys doing? And they said, we're throwing a Potter party. And uh, my wife looked at me, and she said, if we weren't married, you would probably do that, wouldn't you? And I was like, no, of course. No, I, I would. Yeah, I totally would. I totally <laughs> would do that. So um, the fun thing is a few years ago, we dressed up as Harry Potter characters for Halloween and so I was Professor Snape, um, and I got the scariest costume at the party we went to, so that was cool. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Hobbies, I guess, quickly. I like to read. I love to write. Um, I like to draw. And then pretty much anything outdoors, camping, hiking, surfing, just anything where I'm active and outside. I love nature. So that's uh, that's a little bit about me. Wonderful. Well, so you've given us your Hogwarts house. Um, can you tell us any other Potter-related information that you'd like to share? Oh, I have so much, Madison. <laughs> Go for I'm it. A, like I said, I'm a proud Slytherin. Every test I've ever taken has been Slytherin, and I'm not counting the ones. It's like, what are you? Are you brave? Are you loyal? You know, and are you a snake? You know, like those are the the biased ones. But <laughs> Pottermore, you know, the the gold standard. I'm definitely Slytherin there, and. Um, I'm also a Thunderbird. My Patronus, according to Pottermore, is a Mastiff, a dog. And I thought that was kind of funny because I, I know a few people have mentioned that before. Like they didn't feel like their their animal was represented well. And I'm one of those. So I kind of changed mine to a great white shark because I, I really like sharks. I was going to be a shark biologist at one point and I decided not to because I'd be gone too much. But so my Patronus, instead of being a Mastiff, which wasn't a bad choice. I, I'm more of a cat person, but um, I love sharks, and so I decided that mine should be a shark. What else is there? My favorite book is The Gobble of Fire, um, which I know is surprising to some people because usually people say, like, Deathly Hallows or uh, The Prisoner of Azkaban, but mine's definitely The Gobble of Fire. And... Mine too, so okay. I'm, I'm okay. with you. <laughs> 
Um, I have various reasons for that. I, we'll probably get into that in a minute here, but um, the, that's definitely my my favorite book. I love reading that. That's that's the most used of all my books. Um, I usually go back and reread the whole series, but then there are times when I've gone back and just reread that one. Uh, it's a phenomenal book. Mm-hmm. And I think as far as my favorite movies go, the first two I think are, are my favorite just because there's it was when it first came out and there was so much magic in the air and it was so fun. The books were still being you know written and so we didn't quite know how the story ended. And you know John Williams' music was just incredible. And like we go back and watch those every October. We watch the whole series and and the first two always get me every time. I just they're they're so fun. Um, and then I guess the last thing is my my wand from Pottermore is a fur with the dragon heart string. And I know most people that are listening probably don't care much about that, but I kind of going along with what we're going to talk about in a minute. Um, Pottermore refers to wands with fur as survivor's wands. And so I thought that was kind of a, a pretty cool thing that I have one of those survivor wands because I am a survivor. So that's pretty wow. cool. That's wonderful. I, I love that. The wand lore in Pottermore is one of my favorite things uh, to read about. So I'm, I mean, I know you appreciate it because what we're going to talk about. Um, but yes, I, I love a, a fellow wand nerd. <laughs> yes, good. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> so um, can you tell us about how you first discovered the Harry Potter series? Sure. I was 19 years old. I'm 39 right now as of just a couple weeks ago, so I'm probably one of your older guests. Um, And so I discovered Harry Potter for the first time when I was 19. I worked at Barnes & Noble um, just outside Seattle. And I remember this new book was going to come out, and so they had just an end cap, and it had the first three books on it. And I remember walking by and seeing that and thinking, well, this new book, this Goblet of Fire, I didn't understand what that meant was coming out and I thought I should probably see what this is about. So just on one of my 10 minute breaks, I picked up the first book and sat down to read it. I read the first chapter and my break was over and I just did not want to go back to work. All I wanted to do was sit and read Harry Potter. Um, So at the end of my shift, I ended up buying all three just on a whim thinking I liked the first chapter. I think I'll like the rest of these. And I had those read in no time at all. And then, um, the Goblet of Fire came out, and I read that just in break time. I was working full time, so just in break times and you know after work, I ended up reading it in five days. Wow! And, <laughs> yeah, I was I was hooked, just totally and completely hooked. It was so much fun. So that's kind of the the long story short of how I got into Harry Potter, and you know since then, yeah, I discovered uh, MuggleNet back in 2005 when I was working in California. We would have downtime at work, and they said just kind of do your thing, get on the internet and whatever. And so I was Googling Harry Potter stuff and found MuggleNet and started reading all the articles and, and just was blown away. I'm like, there's you know, other people out there that are just as big a geek as I am about this. This is so fun. So that's that's the long story short. That's the, the beautiful journey of book to fandom, starting out with Sorcerer's Stone or wherever you began and then getting all the way into the forums and the articles. It's a... It's like a, I don't know, it's almost like a classic fairy tale, the way that you hear so many Potter fans, how they got into that. It's true. And there's so many different stories out there of how many people got out. And I, I've been amazed at the people that, you know, didn't even know about Harry Potter when it 
you know, the Deathly Hallows had already been out. They never even heard of it. And then all of a sudden someone mentioned it to them sometimes. So they started reading it. And, and that was that, you know, and I was one of those. I didn't hear about it for the first three books. Um, granted, that was, you know, 1999. So it was not as much hype as there is now about them. But still, you know, I, I was I was one who was there early, but felt like I kind of came in late. It's been really fun reading the books to my children. Um, I started, we're a big reading family. And so my wife will read books out loud to them. Um, and then I'll read books out loud to them, other books. And um, we started with The Sorcerer's Stone, you know, a few years ago, um, just sitting down and reading and, and the kids were hooked. And, you know, I, I'm not nearly as good as Jim Dale, but I, I read in accents as, as much as I could and tried to copy Hagrid's accents and, you know, try to make it fun for them. And, and they really enjoyed it. And we got through all seven books. Um, and so we were actually taking a break from Lord of the Rings at the time, which I was reading to them. And then they said they wanted to get into Harry Potter. And I said, okay, let's read Harry Potter. And now they're just obsessed with Harry Potter, just like me. So we're reading another series now. We'll get back to Lord of the Rings, but they are, they are just as much a geek as I am. So that's good. I'm sharing it. (laughs) Yes. It runs in the family. (laughs) It sure does. So you mentioned in your submission, um, that you kind of struggled in your life with severe anxiety or OCD and depression for a while. Um, can you talk about what that's like for you and how it affects your day-to-day life? I'd love to. Um, I was first diagnosed with ADD and bipolar when I was 14 years old. And my mom mm-hmm. since there was something off, and so I, we went to see a psychiatrist, and he prescribed some medication for me, and I took it, hated it. And we went to a different psychiatrist, and we ended up going to three different psychiatrists, and I really didn't have a good experience with any of them um, because I wasn't talking about what was wrong with me. I was just kind of one of the – I remember one of them in particular just listened to what I was saying, wrote a prescription, handed it across the table to me, and didn't ever make eye contact with me, which was really sad to me. And I'm not saying any – I'm not saying that all psychiatrists are bad. That's not at all what I'm saying. But the three that I – was chosen as a kid just weren't the greatest and I've worked with them as an adult and found that you know they're phenomenal now but I just I had a bad luck when I was a kid um, mm-hmm. so I kind of just did my own thing for a long time and then when I was 30 um, this is a few years after my wife and I got married and I was in grad school I remember having a counting ritual I do um, I know a lot of people with OCD count things and um, I was counting things and grouping things and this was occupying my life and I remember wanting to know how bad it was so I literally counted how often I was counting which seems just ridiculous but um, it's what I did and um, I did it over the course of a month and found that this little counting ritual that I would do which would only take a few seconds but I was doing it up to 4,000 times a day and so um, I realized that I wasn't paying attention to what the professors were saying and you know stuff around me when I was driving I wasn't seeing the road I was counting cars and all the stuff and so I mentioned it to my wife one night and she said you should probably go see someone about that and so I went to the counseling center and told them you know I I have this counting thing I have a fear of being dirty you know the washing the hands constantly kind of a thing Mm -hmm. um I have I have a big sense of failure is a big part of what I have going on I think that's not just OCD but that's depression as well as you know, we all are critical of ourselves, uh, but I'm hypercritical of myself to the point that someone can say something nice to me and I'll turn it right back around on them. So I remember when I was 17, I had a girlfriend who 
said something, you know, you look nice today. And I was like, you're just saying that because you're my girlfriend. And she got really mad at me. She's like, you need to learn how to take a compliment. And I thought, I, I really do. But this problem goes back to when I was a teenager. And I'm still fighting that today, though it's gotten a lot better. Uh, but this, this, you know, I have these obsessive thoughts that I can't get out of my head. Sometimes a song lyric will pop into my head. And that's what I'll sing that, you know, a few hundred times in a row before I can focus on doing something else. And it just it dominates my thoughts, and so it's hard to let other thoughts come in when I have just this one thought stuck in my head. Um, I also have, I don't know what to call them, but I'll see things that happen, but they're not actually happening. Like There's one time I remember seeing, I was camping with my oldest son when he was about four years old, and he fell into a river and was washed down river, and I went and picked him up and came out, and he was dead. And then I kind of shook myself out of it and saw that he was still playing next to the river just fine. And I I could have sworn that he was gone. And it was so weird to me. And um, so that kind of thing happens a lot, too, where I'll see something and it doesn't happen. And I know it doesn't happen, but I would swear to you that it happened. And then I'll just focus and obsess with that. And I, I had to work on that one in particular with my son uh, when I started therapy for a long time, actually, to get over that one. So it's... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. So I've uh, I've struggled with intrusive thoughts myself, and the word intrusive is really what sticks out. It's this, you know, it's like somebody barging through your door over and over and over again without a moment's peace. Um, it's it's incredibly difficult to live your life with these kinds of issues, and then with depression on top of that, um, it sounds like it was really tough um, and. You know, I'm, I'm sure that it still is, but um, are you, I guess we'll go through your story, but um, as for where you are right now, are you still really struggling or have you been able to manage some of these thoughts? For the most part, I'm able to manage. I've been through a lot of therapy. I mean, I'm 39. I've been in therapy on and off for nine years. Um, I started out with group therapy. And then um, when we moved to Las Vegas about seven years ago, I started seeing a psychologist here. Um, and you mentioned the intrusive thoughts, just like someone pounding on the door, and that's exactly what it's it's like. Uh, um, and I remember working with the psychologist I worked with, and she said that's going to happen. And she actually used an example of, you know, pretending someone's pounding on the door. And so it's really cool that you said that. Um, and you just let him in, and shut the door, and just accept that he's there. And so. Um, prior to that, I had been working on exposure and response therapy, which is basically where you come up with a hierarchy of all the things that you're, you know, super OCD about, um, you know, perfection or cleanliness or whatever the issue is, and they make you do those things. So I remember one of my issues, you know, is is like a lot of people going into public restrooms. I just they frighten me to no end, mm -hmm. um, and part of that therapy when I first started doing this was I'd had to I had to go into the bathrooms and touch all the stalls and not be able to wash my hands afterwards and it was a nightmare oh, gosh. Um, so the the ex, you know the experience for most people is that they get desensitized to these thoughts they train their brain to say hey listen it's not as bad as you think it is but it didn't work for me because <laughs> it was definitely as bad as I thought it was and like um, but when I worked with the psychologist here it's acceptance and commitment therapy and so you accept that you're going to have these thoughts and you learn to work around them. 
Um, so instead of giving in necessarily, because um, you don't want to do that either, that'll just feed the OCD. The acceptance helps you understand that this is something that I'm going to deal with that's never going to go away. And I can accept that this is a thought I'm going to have and and move on. And it really works super well. I mean, I still have lots of issues. I'm always going to have work to do. Uh, but being in therapy has really, really helped me you know, be able to focus on what needs to be focused on and you know, think about what I need to think about and be able to kind of just push the rest of the stuff away. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. Another, you know, another check in the box for therapy, you know, is very helpful. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad that you've moved into that point. Um, so I guess before things started to get a little better, um, you know, they were a little bit worse told me about two years ago that you survived a suicide attempt and went into a psychiatric hospital. Can you tell us a little bit about what your life was like at that time? Yeah, I mean, I work full time and I have for, you know, since I was a teenager. So that's nothing new. Um, being married, having kids, you know, it's all stressful. Um, the thing I think with the depression and the OCD is you just never quite know when something's going to happen or when an intrusive thought, you know, when someone's going to come bang on my door and say, hey, you need to pay attention to me now. And um, so right around that time, you know, I was transitioning from work um, from one hospital to another. And, you know, things were pretty normal in my house. Um, I had a very intrusive thought come into my head and it involved my children. And I ended up, I was cooking dinner at the time. Three of my children were home and my oldest was with my wife. And so I remember putting dinner in the oven and going and standing outside and just trying to get this thought. I was I was not using the acceptance therapy. I was trying to just get rid of this thought because it was one I did not want to have in my head. You know, it was like when people say, don't think about a pink elephant. Well, you just did, you know. So yeah. it's I'm trying not to think about this. And I know that this is not the right strategy to use, but that's what I did. And just I didn't want to see this. I didn't want to hear it. I didn't want to feel it. And so and I remember when my wife came home, my son came outside and said, Dad, look at my shoes. And I knew they were home. I knew she was home and the kids were safe. I grabbed my keys. I didn't have my phone or my shoes or anything. Just ran out and took off because I knew I needed to get away. Um, so I'm not going to get into the details, of course, about what happened. But I did attempt and I ended up being admitted to a, a mental hospital, like you said, a psychiatric hospital for six days. Um, and the hospital itself was a very interesting experience. It was very eye-opening for me to see that there were other people. There was one other person in there with me that had just survived her own attempt, and her and I bonded. We spent a lot of time talking together. Um, she was a little bit older, and she'd been through this once or twice before herself, and so we kind of helped each other get through the the setting of this you know, crazy hospital. It was a, a very odd experience, but also a very good one for me at the same time. I was able to get out these feelings and these emotions and kind of work on dealing with what is going on with my brain and and continuing like I had before to try and accept some of these thoughts even if I don't want to and so um so I had six days I was released and got to come home so it was uh it was very interesting coming home you mentioned that you mentioned it was um it was it felt very different and all it was kind of weird being back it was definitely weird. Um, I took a day off of work um, after getting out. I was released on a Tuesday, and I took Wednesday off, and I was right back to work on Thursday. Um, 
mostly because I needed to be um, for lots of reasons. I think it was probably good for me to get out and be doing something. You know, it's always good when you get out and help other people if you're going through problems because serving other people always helps you feel better. But I know it was it was hard for me to go to work and to be happy and smiling. And I'm a pretty fun, happy person. Um, obviously, what we're talking about now is very serious, so I'm a lot more serious. But I'm a pretty outgoing, laid-back, fun person, and I had to present that at work because that's what my patients expect. That's what my coworkers expect, and and none of them knew where I had been. Um, they just knew that I took an impromptu vacation, um, save for my boss. He was the one person that knew what was going on. And so I had to just pretend to be fun and happy, and I thought, but I am happy. But I thought I can't be happy because I just a week ago I tried to kill myself. Like I can't feel – there were so many emotions going on of I'm supposed to be happy, I have to be happy, but I shouldn't be happy. Uh, but I'm still working out You know, the, my depression. I'm still working out the OCD thoughts that I had. I'm, there were so many things going on. And I, I remember thinking about – um, you'll have to forgive me. I don't remember which book it is. I think it's book five um, when, you know, Ron says, no one person could feel all those emotions. And Hermione says, just because you've got the emotional range of a teaspoon. <laughs> um, and I thought I felt that same way. I had a hundred different emotions going on at any given second. And it's so exhausting. And I think that's what was so hard about the whole thing was I was at work for eight hours and kind of putting on this face being fake you know but still trying to think like but I am happy because I have to talk myself into saying that and, and then being just completely drained because that's very exhausting and then coming home and my kids are home and they see dad's home and they want to play and have fun and they don't realize that I just want to go upstairs and get into bed and not do anything um, so I I had to work all of those emotions out all these feelings out and still feeling like you know I I remember laughing and thinking, well, I'm not supposed to laugh, right? Because I just tried to do this. But I had people say, no, you need to laugh. It's okay to laugh. You know, my wife in particular was very supportive through all of this. Um, and so she's she's a big reason why I was able to get past, you know, these feelings and help work the stuff out. And therapy, to go back to another check mark for therapy. Therapy was a <laughs> huge reason why I got better. And I guess we're going to kind of lead into that here. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for for being so vulnerable about that. I can only imagine, I mean, between all of the, I should feel this way, but I don't feel this way. That's on top of everything that you had just gone through before that. What a hurricane to be standing in the middle of. Um, that's no joke. Um, and, but I guess as you... Uh, after you came out kind of back into your life um, things started to uh, things started to change and maybe get a little bit better um, so can you kind of tell us the story of how you started carving wands yeah so kind of like I mentioned I was coming home from work and the kids see hey dad's home it's time to play and I'm the kind of dad who goes out and like wrestles with the kids you know my wife is always like oh good there's another adult home and then she sees me playing with the kids, and she's like, eh, never mind. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm a very big kid, especially with my kids, because you know they're, they're growing up fast, and I want to just make sure that we spend a lot of time together and have fun. And so I've set the standard. When I come home, it's time to play, and we goof off. And, and so 
when I came out of the hospital, coming home from work, I didn't want to do anything for lots of reasons. You know, one, I'm just exhausted from from work and having to do kind of what we already talked about. But but the kids didn't know that, um, and so kids wanted me to come outside and play with them, and I just didn't have any desire to. Um, so I grabbed a stick and I grabbed a knife, which I realized probably wasn't the best thing for for someone like me to have been using right at that time, but. I went outside and just started carving this piece of wood. I started just like a potato, you know, peeling the outside layer of this stick. And before I knew it, I thought, this could be a wand. And I thought, I'm going to make this into a wand. And the stick was, I mean, the stick is probably a foot and a half long. It was huge. And I thought, well, that's too big to be a wand. And then I thought, no, I'm going to make this a wand. And so I started carving it, and then I put some detail on it. I actually made it a two-headed snake. Um, and what was cool about it, the wand, was the the handle was really big, but at the end of the wand, the tip of the wand, it was kind of broken and fragmented. Um, the wood had, you know, splintered a little bit, and I didn't, I didn't take it off. I wanted to leave it there because I wanted that to be part of the wand. And then the more I realized as I'm building this wand, this is Hagrid's wand. And I remember thinking, I want this for Hagrid. Hagrid, you know, he had his wand broken, and that was sad. And I always pictured him, you know, you've seen the memes and stuff of him going back to school and sitting in that tiny little desk with all the first years and being so <laughs> excited. And I thought, Hagrid needs a wand. And so I, I finished this wand for him. Um, and I love it because it's it's got this double-headed snake, which Hagrid would have loved to have had. I don't know how that would have worked. Um, but... Um, I ended up inscribing his name on the handle and then putting a, an H and an R on the top, uh, on the front end and the you know the, the tip in the back. And then having the splintered end, I thought was just perfect for him, you know, because he's he's a little bit splintered himself. Yeah, this this first one being for Hagrid, um, it seems the way you're talking about him and the way you'd mentioned in your submission, it seems like you like really connect with Hagrid. Haggard is probably my favorite character in all of the series. Um, he's someone, he's misunderstood all the time by those who don't get to know him. And I think by those that do get to know him, they can see just how complicated he is, how much love he has for everything. I mean, I even thought back to book three when uh, they meet the hippogriffs for the first time and Malfoy, you know, casually remarks about Buckbeak's appearance and and Buckbeak knocks him down and what's the first thing Hagrid did? It didn't matter he was a Slytherin, didn't matter that it was Malfoy, who's, you know, Malfoy, who I think is actually pretty cool, but um, <laughs> I'm a Slytherin, so I have to. But his first instinct was to pick Malfoy up and ran him himself up to the hospital wing. And that that story alone just summarizes how good of a person or good of a being Hagrid is and so I've always connected with Hagrid um, I, I know you know some people will argue I'm sure but I, I always felt like he was Harry's best father figure he never doubted Harry he was always there for Harry and I remember reading book seven for the first time and when Harry makes the decision to go into the woods and just as, after he drops the resurrection stone and his family disappears and he walks into the clearing you know <laughs> it's Hagrid right there and he's yelling at Harry no you know Harry like how could you and until one of the death eaters shuts him up and and that just it's Hagrid he's he's always right by Harry's side and he he was so loyal and so amazing I always loved the relationship between not just the trio and and Hagrid but Harry and Hagrid because I think they both understood each other maybe a little more than 
some of the other people in the in the series could. You're making me tear up. It's uh, <laughs> I think you're so right. It's one of the most beautiful relationships in the books, and Hag- none, no character is perfect, but Hagrid's he's just so pure. <laughs> he's so kind and. Uh, like you said, a really wonderful father figure for Harry. And Hagrid's the one who carried him, you know? it's It was so... Yeah. Hagrid was just an amazing... And, you know, he, the love he had for all creatures, it didn't matter. And I, I think that's maybe one of the things... Maybe one of Hagrid's faults, too, is that he cared about all creatures, even the ones that you probably shouldn't care about. I mean, I am not a fan of spiders. I'm right there with Ron. So I think <laughs> Aragog and all those guys can just stay out of the books. <laughs> but... Um, but I think, you know, just the love that he has for, and it doesn't matter where you come from, who you are, he loves everybody. And I think that's such a noble trait to have. And there's no judgment. I never hear any judgment on his part, you know, and he's so loyal. So Hagrid is definitely one of my favorite characters, if not my favorite. And I know it drives my family crazy, but when we play Harry Potter Uno, anytime I get Hagrid, I slap his card down on the table and yell, Hagger, really loud. <laughs> so they think I'm crazy. <laughs> Oh, I, th- I think that's the only appropriate response when you're playing Harry Potter Uno. So <laughs> I totally agree. So um, I think I think that when I was making that wand, um, I thought you know I'll just make this a cool wand. And then when I made it into this you know splintered double-headed snake wand, I realized this had been Hagrid's wand the whole time. And I can tell looking at it. In fact, I have it sitting here right next to me. I can tell looking at it, all the little imperfections, it was definitely my first wand because if I were to redo it, I would make it look so much better now. Um, but all those little imperfections, all the little things that I can see, it doesn't matter because I love it. And I know that, you know, if I were to be able to give it to him, he would say the same. He would just, he'd have nothing but praise for it, you know. And, and so I think that's something that we can all work on is seeing people the way he saw people, you know, like... We're, we're fragmented, we're all splintered, we're all broken, but there's always good in us. We all have good and we all have something to offer other people and we need to be able to help other people realize that they have that in them as well. That's so beautiful and I love how you can, you looked at this wand as you were creating it and it, it just became a sort of microcosm of Hagrid himself, you know, this metaphor with the broken, like the splinter, um, the the two-headed snake you know double-headed snake with the beasts and creatures that he loves and I'm curious to know as you continue to make wands um, did it happen the same way where you would carve it and then figure out oh this is so-and-so's wand or did you set out with a little more intention when I sit down to carve a wand I never have in my head what I want to make or who I want to make it for Um, I've never attempted to replicate any of the Harry Potter wands um, I just kind of create whatever's in my head. I, I feel corny as it sounds, like the wood just speaks to me, like carve here, move this here, do whatever, and and it turns out to be whatever wand it's supposed to be. Um, the only exception to that is I had a friend uh, who wanted to buy a wand for her daughter, and her daughter was obsessed with unicorns, and so she asked for a unicorn horn-shaped wand. And so with that in mind, I thought, okay, well, I did some research, made some drawings, and then made a wand um, with with a purpose. But other than that, every wand I've ever made has just been, I'm just going to carve and see what happens. And it's been really fun to see how different all the wands have come out. So it's been very rewarding for me. 
Do you have any other uh, any other favorite? You know, any wands that you really love that you've made? There are. I made my wand from Pottermore, um, which looks really really cool. If I can, you know, brag a little. Of course. Um, <laughs> I think probably my favorite wand that I've ever made. I made for my daughter. Um, and it's basically a spiral-shaped wand coming down. And so some of it's carved further down. And then on the top part, I have her name carved around on the outside. And then I have the Death, uh, the, the Deathly Hallows logo at the very bottom. And that wand to me just, because it's got her name on it, and her middle name comes from a Lord of the Rings character. And so, of course, I'm a geek about that too. But just seeing her name on the wand and seeing how pretty it turned out. And it's, it's a really pretty color and everything. I just, I love that wand. But I, I kind of feel like every wand I've made, I haven't just been kind of eh. Like I've loved every wand I've made, and it's been hard. Some I've, I've given away a few wands, I've sold a few wands, and each time that happens, it's so hard to part with them because I feel like there's my heart and soul is in that thing, and and it's been it's been tough. But, um, but yeah, I, I I don't know if I have a favorite wand. They're all it's like picking my favorite child, maybe. <laughs> if I'm just compared my children to wands, I guess. <laughs> They're, you know, something you create, but definitely they're they're all beautiful and special in their own way. So, well, I'm curious this process of wand making. Um, I I guess you know it started with this one moment, and how um, how did the process of wand making start to intertwine with your mental health? That's a great question. Um, I was soon after I got out of the hospital. We found a therapist to work with, and I started seeing him every week, and he was a phenomenal therapist. Um, We didn't do any of the therapies that I had done before. It was a lot of just him asking me questions and me talking, um, just kind of verbally vomiting on him, I guess, if to to use a really wicked term. But it was really good for me to kind of get things out and, and say, you know, I have felt about certain things and to be really honest about stuff. Um, I remember one time in particular, he, you know, he, he said, you're, you have depression. And I said, I don't have depression. I am depressed, but I don't have depression. There's a difference, you know, and I tried arguing with him and he pulled out the DSM and, you know, read off the questions and I answered them. And I was like, I had to face facts that I do, I do have depression. And it was a really hard moment for me. Um, because it was just kind of like, you know, one more thing I can deal with being depressed because everyone goes through depression but not everyone has depression and there is a difference. Um, but I remember him one time in particular, he asked me about the wands and he said, you're a Harry Potter fan, right? Yes. Um, cause I mentioned him a few times, I'm sure. Cause that's what I do. Um, <laughs> I love star Wars and the Lord of the Rings too. I'm not, uh, I'm not shy in my fandoms. I, I love it all. Um, I'm, I'm the same with sports. I love basketball and football and stuff too. So I, I think you can be a geek about anything that makes you happy. Um, but I remember in particular him asking me about, he wasn't super familiar with the series, but he was familiar enough. He said, tell me about the Dementors. And I said, well, Dementors are these scary figures that, you know, guard Azkaban prison and they're really freaky. And I said, but beyond that, it's, you know, Miss Rowling's interpretation of depression. And she describes it so well when she's describing the Dementors, like you can feel what she was going through when she was writing this. And he said, so the Dementors represent depression. How does Harry get rid of the Dementors? And I said, well, he pulls out his wand and yells, expecto patronum, while thinking a really happy thought. And he said, okay, I want you to do that. And I thought, do, 
wait, do do what? <laughs> you want me to cast a spell to get rid of my Dementors? And he said, yeah, I want you to do exactly that. He said, I know you make wands. I had actually brought him a wand. He had asked, you know, prior previous session um, to see one. So I brought him one of my wands. I think I actually brought him Hagrid's wand. Um, and so he said, I know you can make wands. So I want you to go home. I want you to make a wand specifically for your depression and for your OCD. And I want you to make this wand and I want you to expecto patronum the bad thoughts away. And I remember thinking, you're just a little crazy. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> I, I don't see how I'm going to do that. My Pottermore wand is, and it's not a true 12 and a half inches like Pottermore says it should be. I think it's more like 13 or 14 inches, but it's it's a big wand. And I thought, I can't take, I wear scrubs to work. I can't put that in my scrubs. People are going to be like, what's that thing sticking out of your scrubs? <laughs> oh, it's it's my wand because I have to expect Opatronum, my negative thoughts, you know. And um, he said, no, make a make a small wand. Make one that can fit in your pocket. And I thought, oh well, okay. Now, now, now we're talking. You know, I thought this this sounds like a really good idea. the The key for me was going home and telling my wife, because usually after my sessions, I'd go home and talk to my wife about what we talked about um, and whatever we need to work on. And I remember thinking, here's my test, because if, you know, she's she's not a she's a geek now. She she has to admit that she's a geek now, um, but she's she's not nearly on the level that myself or my children are on, um, but. I, I thought if I go home and I tell her this and she says positive stuff about it, then I'm going to do it. If she says, you know, it seems kind of weird or something like that, then probably I won't do it. Um, and I'm glad that I have such a positive wife um, because when I got home, how was your session? I told her, well, uh, he wants me to make a wand, keep in my pocket and expect to patron him the bad thoughts away. What do you think? And she's like, I think that's a great idea. And I was like, Yay. <laughs> I know. And I, I, in my head, I, I said it out loud. I said, are you serious? Like, you really think that's a good idea? And she's like, yeah, I think that's a great idea. And I was like, okay. So I went and made a wand right then. It was My sessions with him were pretty late. They're usually about 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock um, at night. And so I remember going out to the garage, cutting a piece of wood down to about four inches, and I whittled this thing. I don't remember what we were, we were watching, some Netflix show and whittling this wand and and I made a little thumb, you know, a little place for my thumb, a little place for my finger. And then I, I typed or I, I carved in the words, you know, or the letters, I'm sorry, FD. And my wife asked what that was for. And I said, well, that stands for four Dementors. And she said, oh, that's cool. That's a good idea. And then I said, well, but it also stands for four depression. And she said, oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. And then I said, but, and I'm not going to say the third thing I said it stood for, but <laughs> it's, it stands for a different word, maybe a bad word, um, but also about depression. Uh, because every time, you know, every time I grabbed the wand, I thought that same thing, just screw this. I'm sick of this. You know, so, so much energy is spent dealing with this. And so I ended up staining it that night, let it stain overnight. And I stained it again the next morning, and then by that night I had it ready to go, and I've had it with me. I'm as we're talking, I'm literally holding it in my hand right now. Um, it's discolored, and it needs to be restained again um, because I I've held on to this thing for a long time. And so what happened was I first started hearing, you know depression come in or, or OCD come in and say, you know, hey, you are terrible at your job or you suck at being a father or whatever the bad thought was. I'd have these thoughts come into my head and I would just reach into my pocket, grab my wand and I would close my eyes and say, expecto patronum. And I would actually say it out loud at first. Like, 
I got to the point where I could cast a nonverbal spell, I guess. Um, but I, I would say it out loud at first, and it didn't work a lot of times. And I realized it didn't work because I wasn't thinking about something happy. And it wow. worked exactly like the book. So I remember thinking when my when I needed my Patronus, and I always pictured a great white shark coming out of it, like I told you before, because a dog is just a mastiff in particular. If a dog, it would have been a husky or something, you know, something different. But um, when I was thinking about my Patronus, I, was, I would think about and I would visualize a great white shark coming out of my wand and kind of just swimming around me and protecting me. And sharks don't scare me at all. I love sharks. And so having a great white shark swimming around you, for some people, that might cause some anxiety. But for me, it was it was a beautiful thing. But I remembered it only worked when I would think of something happy first. And so my default happy thought is always my kids laughing. Because to me, there's no greater sound to hear than my kids laughing. Because it means they're happy. And usually, you know, I, I would picture myself tickling them and, and them laughing. Because in that moment, no matter what's going on in my head, I'm happy too. Even if it's just fleeting and even if it's just for a few seconds, I know that I'm happy too. And so when I would think about that happy thought, I would cast my little spell and boom, that thought would just be gone. And what I realized, it, it wasn't even necessarily the wand, but it was taking the negative thought out of my brain and trying to think about something positive. That's what was really reinforcing. And so it was helping to retrain my brain you know, when a negative thought comes to think of something happy because, you know, in my brain, some other people may be different, but in my brain, I can't have both in my head. Like it's one or the other. And so if I have something negative in my head, that's what's in my head. But if I can think about something positive, it's like it just shoves that negative thing out. And says, you know what? I don't want you in here right now. What a beautiful way that uh, a wand gets to be a bridge, you know, between that, the the movement of a negative thought out and a, a positive one in. That's uh, that's just, I, I think it's wonderful how it can be such a physical uh, symbol for that process happening. Absolutely. And I know, you know, after a few months of, of having this with me, um, I would go to work and I did be in my pocket and... I got to the point where even knowing it was there was enough. Um, like, like I said, at first, it would have to be like an actual, like saying it out loud. So usually I would try and do it when other people weren't around because um, I don't want people thinking like this dude has lost his rocker. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I wanted to make sure that I was going to take this seriously and do this right because I just want to be better. I'm never going to be perfect. I'm never going to be 100%, but just a little better each day. And so I know grabbing the wand and doing the spell at first really helped, but I got to the point where just knowing it was in my pocket, knowing it was with me, was enough where I could say, you know, I'd start to have an intrusive thought and just say, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to do this right now, and I just move on. And so it worked so well for me. I still keep it with me. It's been two years. It's been about two years because um, I was in therapy. You know, this this happened in April. Um, when I was in the hospital. And so it was about at this time in therapy when he mentioned, you know, making the wand. So it's been about two years now that I've had this wand and I never, never let it go. In fact, wow. I, I had, I, I lost it one time and I had kind of a pretty massive panic attack, mm -hmm. but, and I knew it was a silly thing to freak out about, but luckily I found it. I'm glad. <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't think that's silly. I think that's a, Sometimes objects hold 
I mean, they definitely, especially in this case, it's a real significance. Um, And of course, you could always make a new one, but sometimes that it's like your first Harry Potter book in a way. You know, you said Goblet of Fire is like the most worn of all your books. And it's this small wand is like its own little, you know, uh, very uh, deeply loved Harry Potter book with the wear and tear and needing the restaining and everything. Um, I'm curious because with using a wand and expecto patronum and these Harry Potter metaphors, um, it's whenever you start to really use um, particularly something from a fandom in this way that's so deeply entrenched with your mental health, um, it seems like it would make a difference in your experience with the, with the, you know, the art, whatever it be, in this case, Harry Potter. And I'm curious to know what your relationship, like how your relationship with the Harry Potter series changed as from, um, you know, kind of before this time in your life to, you know, all the way making the wands and using uh, the Patronus charm like this? That's a great question. Um, I think, you know, given that I've been at this for 20 years now, it's it's changed a lot. I know when I first read the books, and I know we could all, I think one of your previous guests even mentioned wishing we could go back and read it again for the first time and just having that experience and feeling that, oh my goodness, this is so cool. Literally, it's magic. You know, it was so fun. Um, to now where it's such a big part of my life that, you know, like I'm carving wands and I talk to people about Harry Potter and um, and it's it's just a normal part of life for me now. Um, so there's there's been a big difference just with that. It's kind of become part of my life. Whereas, you know, when I was 18 years old, I didn't even know what Harry Potter was or who he was or any of that stuff. And so um, I know another difference between back then and now was, you know, I read them when I was first 19 um, until, you know, I'm 39 now, like I said. Um, my attitudes have changed. My tastes have changed. I've matured, sort of. I'm still very much that 19-year-old kid I was, but um, but I've matured a lot. And I, when I go back and read them now, reading them as an adult, it's a little bit different. You know, I can I can empathize more with the characters. And I know being out of my teenage years and going back and reading, especially, you know, Order of the Phoenix when it's, you know, Grumpy Harry or whatever they're calling it right now, um, all caps Harry maybe, um, mm-hmm. I can I can appreciate that. Like, I've been through that. I know what that's like. And the way it was written, you know, J.K. Rowling did such a phenomenal job catching what it's like to be a teenager. And just because he was a wizard didn't mean he still didn't feel the same emotions we feel, you know, as human beings. And, and so going back and reading it as an adult, you know, he kind of annoyed me a little bit when I was younger, just because I didn't, it's like, he's what a, what a whiny little kid, you know, and now I get it. Okay. It makes sense. Um, I know another thing in particular that has struck me is in chamber of secrets when Ron breaks his wand. Um, and then later in deathly hollows when Harry's breaks, it was devastating, you know, and going back and thinking about the time and as, as silly as it sounds to lose my, my little, you know, worry wand, I guess, um, to to lose that was devastating to me. It was so hard because I thought I can't do this on my own. I have my wife, I have my kids, I have a really good support system around me. I have very good friends, but that wand, it's almost like it knows me better than they know me. You know, it's been through this with me. It's helping me get through this on a very literal level. 
and to lose that was just it was heart-wrenching for me and so going back and reading the deathly hollows you know when when harry's wand he doesn't he keeps it but he can't use it obviously and just being able to not just sympathize because sympathize you know that's i can understand that must be bad but empathize i know what that's like because i've been through that and so now now i can empathize with some of these characters and what they're going through and and then especially having depression you know going back and reading prisoner of azkaban when she's so descriptive of what the dementors are like it's she she captured it so perfectly and i think that's why so many people relate to it um, because she captures not just the dementors and the depression, but the happiness and the awkwardness and all of the emotions that we feel. I think that's why so many people love the series. There's something in there for everybody. You know, you've got animal lovers, you've got whatever. There's there's something in Harry Potter for everyone. And I think, you know, going back and reading that as an adult, I can see, I can see that. I can see how human these characters really are. Absolutely. Every single new layer of your own life that you get to go back and re um, regain perspective on the series with it can it just uh, it I don't even I don't even know how to describe it how to put it into words you know it's like you're peeling back another layer of something and um, especially going from that kind of era of young adulthood to particularly for you, like becoming a parent, you know, seeing it from the perspective of somebody who is older than Harry is in the books. That's uh, what a huge, enormous change to go through and to be able to relate to the characters in new ways. So I know with my kids in particular, you know, we have a rule in our house. We bend sometimes, but we have a rule in our house. If you want to see the movie and it's based on a book, you got to read the book first. Um, Because in my opinion, the books are always better, although movies... You know, especially the Harry Potter movies, it's fun to see your characters that you've come to love and know on the big screen. It's just there's something cool about that. But um, so I remember um, the deal with my kids was if you want, like, I'm going to read the books to you, but you can't read ahead. You can go back and read anything we've already read, but you can't read ahead because I want to experience that with them, you know. And it was so fun to see them just their minds just open up and, you know, explore this world with me that I already knew and loved and uh, to see them know and love it. And then to be able to raise them, you know, knowing some of the things that these characters have gone through and, you know, the, the injustice and the bigotry and all of these other things that they talk about in the books. Like, I love that my kids from an early age, it's something we've been teaching them, but also, you know, having read the books and having a fictionalized version of these things, they're able to, you know, sympathize, empathize, not judge the people that are around them. And it's worked really well. I mean, I'm biased because I have really good kids, but um, I think it's helped us as parents be able to teach them how to love each other, how to be kind to each other, you know, be like Hagrid. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned earlier that you are writing a book about your experiences. um, And I just would love to know, just, you know, kind of get the rundown of what you're writing about, what that process has been like, anything you'd like to share. Um, yeah, so I'm writing a book. I, it's titled Six Days In. Um, it's about my experience. Uh, the very first part of the book is the you know, the entry going into the hospital and um, having to say goodbye to my wife and getting strip searched and, and brought into the hospital um, and really not having a clue what was going on. And um, just my experience being in there, it was a very 
eye-opening experience for lots of reasons. Um, I know in particular for me, it was the first time other than my wife that I talked about my attempt. Um, and it was that very next morning, there was one of the therapists there that um, asked if I was who I was. I said, yes. And they said, can you come talk to me about this? And so I did. And it was really weird. I did not want to talk about it. Um, I didn't want to talk about the emotions I had leading up to the attempt. I didn't want to talk about my feelings because it it felt like if I talk about this, it's going to make it real. And I knew it wasn't, you know, I knew the thoughts that I had weren't real. But what happened afterwards, of course, was real with, with the attempt and the hospitalization. Um, I just didn't want to talk about it. And I think part of that's being a guy, and I'm not saying, you know, not, not saying anything about guys versus girls, but I think sometimes it's harder it's just hard for people to talk about their emotions in general. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. Um, and especially when you start talking about something like this. Um, so I think part of the reason I'm writing the book is just to share with people what it's like to have a mental illness, because I think, I think the world is changing for the better. And I think being able to talk about mental illness is becoming less, uh, scandalous, um, or whatever the right word is. Um, and especially with, you know, May being mental illness, mental illness awareness month. And there's a lot of people out there, um, you know, especially suicide survivors with the, uh, semicolon tattoos and everything that's going on. There's a lot of awareness out there and I think it's a beautiful thing, but it's also, there's still so much work to do and there's still so much people don't understand. I remember when I was first diagnosed with OCD, you know, the psychologist that I was working with said, yep, you have classic OCD. And I thought, what? what does that mean? Classic OCD. And I think I don't walk through doors backwards and things like that. So even me who has this disorder had this preconceived notion of what it was like. I'm like, I don't turn the lights on and off a hundred times, you know, because I think a plane is going to crash or something. These are things that I thought were just bizarre. And then she said, well, tell me about some of the things that you do have. And I told her and she said, is that not any different than what you explained before, walking through doors backwards and whatever? And I thought, you know, that's that's absolutely right. And so even me, someone who's dealing with this, is still learning about this. And I think that, that puts people who don't have this at a disadvantage. I know um, one reason I'm writing the book is just to get people to understand, especially people that don't have mental illness. Because those of us that do, we get it. There's a part of us that just says, even if I'm not dealing with the same things that they're going through, or I don't have the same OCD things that that, that guy has, I get it. I understand it. And that's something that, you know, my, my wife, God bless her, she's she's tried to understand. We've, we've had a discussion once where she was trying to get me to understand what it's like to be pregnant. And, you know, just explaining that bond that she has and being able to feel the baby moving inside her and all these things. I will never understand what that's like because I've never been through it. And you know, I'm never going to go through it, which is okay with me. <laughs> but that, that feeling that she had, that, that it's almost spiritual, you know, that, that bond that she has with our kids, I don't have that. And I'll never understand that. And it's okay. But I can try to understand it. Um, just like, you know, she's tried with me to understand why, you know, the whole counter, the kitchen counter can be a complete disaster, but I'm focused on this one set of papers that need to be aligned perfectly. Why does that paper have to be perfect when all the rest of the house is a mess? Things like that. Um, I've tried to help her understand what my brain is like, and I'll never be able to because she doesn't have OCD. She doesn't understand 
OCD like I do. Be, you know, it's, it's a different thing. So I think part of the reason writing the book is to get people to see this is what it's like for someone who has it. And I don't have it severe like some other people do. I know I know I have it a lot better than other people, and I know I have it a lot worse than other people. I think there's no perfect person, and there's no perfect OCD, there's no perfect depression. I think we're all on the spectrum somewhere. And so... Um, I, one thing I learned in the hospital in particular is to not compare myself to other people. You know, some, I, you know, I've been told, you know, your OCD is not as bad as some other people. In fact, my, my first psychologist told me that. And I thought, I thought for me it is, (laughs) you know, like (laughs) for them, you know, they may be so disabled. They can't go outside ever, um, because they're so, they've got so many thoughts and so many emotions that they can't even get outside. Well, I can. I, I can work. You know, I work with a lot of different people, and I've worked with people that have, um, you know, alcoholism, and they talk to me about what it's like going to work as a functioning alcoholic. And I thought, well, I'm a functioning depressive. You know, I'm a I'm a functioning OCD because I can get up and go to work and do what I need to do, and live my life, but deal with this at the same time. And so I think it's good for people to understand what it's like depression does not have a face you know people aren't going to be just like moping around and sad all the time like you know stereotypical depressive um that's not to say that's not going to happen but most of the people that i know that have mental illness get up and go to work and they do their thing and people think like well if you're able to get up and go to work then you must not have depression and that's just not true and so it's helping to open people's minds and to see this is what it's like for us that have to deal with this um, and I think to some extent, everyone has depression. Everyone has OCD. We all have that favorite spot we park in the parking lot at work. We have the same food we like to eat at the different restaurants, things like that. But it's when you can't have that and then that's going to dominate your thoughts. You know, I can't park in my spot today, so I'm just going to go home instead. You know, those kinds of thoughts and feelings are what what it's like. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding out there. And I do think there are a lot of people that are trying really hard to understand what it's like because they want to help, but they just don't know what to say or what to do. Um, So I can say one thing for anyone that may be listening that thinks calm down is a good thing to say to someone with a panic attack. It's the wrong (laughs) thing to say (laughs) because if I could calm down, I would. (laughs) So so there are things. It's just it's just about broadening broaden your horizon, you know, Professor Trelawney. So yeah. broaden, broadening your mind, broadening what you think and what you feel and and helping other people get through what they need to be, be what they need to go through. And I know for me, when I have, I have, you know, a select few friends of mine that are going through similar things with me and we're, we text each other all the time. And even if it's just, you know, one of my friends will text me randomly and just say, hey man, thinking about you. And just knowing that he's thinking about me helps me feel so much better. Like, okay, I got this, I got this. And and I found oftentimes when I get those texts, um, it's at a time when I needed someone to say something like that, even if it's just, hey, how are you doing? It's it's amazing to me that, that people, you know, we're very intuitive, and but I think we just don't know what to say. So so I'm, I'm writing the book for lots of different reasons. It started just being cathartic for me just to get it out because it was so weird um, to be in a mental institution you know mm-hmm. um getting out like we talked about before was so weird so it was it started out just me writing just to write and get it out and then i thought you know i want to get this out and have people read this and, and see what it's like um and for the people that are suffering from things just to know like hey i'm here you're here we're in this together we can do this and so um yeah it's gonna be uh, my goal is to have it ready to publish by the end of the year 
Um, and so I'll. And if you have a website or anything you want to share with anybody, um, you can share that with me and then I'll make sure that's linked for you guys below or in our social media. So. Perfect. Thank you kind of reflecting on what you've been talking about for some of the motivations behind this book. And um, it's so interesting to me how in this conversation about mental illness that has been uh, growing in the past few years, how there are so many people who it seems like it's like everybody's been keeping all of this inside for a really long time. And what has been bringing this healing. Um, and I'm obviously very biased because I am frequently talking to people who want to talk about their mental illness and who want to share these things. But this process of sharing and shedding light um, is just so powerful. Um, and as you were mentioning earlier, if you even look at just the demographics of you know who has been on the show, like a lot of times it's more often than not, it's women. Um, than men. And so I really applaud you for uh, talking about this stuff because it's it's not easy. And um, it, sometimes I think it could probably feel like you're trailblazing, particularly when there's not a lot of other men talking about it. Um, so thank you for sharing your experience, not only here, but for, you know, going more in depth. I think it's going to be, I think your book is going to touch a lot of people. And I hope so, because that's the goal. And I know in particular, you know, I have a, a group that I go to um, as part of therapy now. It's And it's just a man group, um, a group of men talking. And my wife always, what do you guys even talk about? Because <laughs> men don't talk about stuff. Um, but it's been really, really good because it's, it's just a chance for us to come together and just say, this is what's going on. And this is what bothers me and, and just kind of get it out. And I think there's so many times, you know, I, I can tell you times when I was a teenager, something would be going on and just suck it up and be a man. Like that's the advice I would get, you know, just suck it up, deal with it. Stop being a wimp, you know, like why, why is talking about my feelings being a wimp? That's not being a wimp. It's like, I'm trying to get this stuff out and no one wants to hear it, you know? And so it was very frustrating. So I know like one of your other uh, callers, I, I turned to poetry a lot as a teenager. I wrote a ton of poetry because that's where I could get my thoughts and feelings out because it didn't seem like anyone else wanted to listen least of all the the people that I was going to as professionals, you know, and I went, like I said, those few times and just got sour on it. Luckily, I changed my mind because going to professionals now, I think, is absolutely crucial. Um, But but back then, you know, this was early to mid 90s um, into the late 90s, I guess. Um, We just didn't talk about this kind of stuff. And I know, you know, I've had several surgeries, knee surgery, arm surgery and and I'm very open about talking about that. And people are very open to listening about that. Oh, well, did you do physical therapy? And yeah, I did physical therapy and I was able to walk and do all the stuff. And like, people are very cool talking about that kind of stuff. But the minute I mention suicide or, you know, I was, I was in a hospital. What, what kind of hospital? What was it for? Oh, it was a mental hospital. Oh, it's just the tone changes completely. You know, or if I say, you know, I suffer from depression, you know, or I'm having a really bad, you know, how are you doing today? Just honestly, today's a really bad day. I've got a lot of OCD and people just shut down. I don't want to hear that. But if I mention anything physical, it's totally cool to talk about that. So I think there's, there's still the stigma. And I think there's probably always to some extent going to be that stigma of not wanting to talk about mental illness. And I think that's, we need to break that. And I absolutely think, um, you know, 
all of the stuff that we're doing here and, you know, me being able to get out and talk to the people that I'm talking to and, you know, the book, um, I've been reading a lot of other people's books and articles and blog posts. You know, I read one about Kevin Love who played for the Cavaliers, um, in the NBA about how he had a panic attack during one game and he didn't know what it was. And he ended up going to a psychologist and he had to deal with this. He had, he had very severe anxiety and he thought that I, I'm a, I'm a grown man. I'm an athlete. I'm, you know, I, I shouldn't have to deal with this. And it hits people. It hits. It doesn't matter who you are, or where you come from. And I think that's what's that's what can be so cool about this is if we are able to sit down and have conversations with each other, we're going to find that we have so much in common. It doesn't matter where you come from or who you are. We all have stuff to deal with. You know, I know someone once said, if we could see what everyone else is going through, we would all be a lot nicer to each other. I think like that's exactly right, you know, and I think kind of going back to Harry Potter, like we know what it was like for him. We we see what it was like for him. And unfortunately, we don't get to see, you know, the Hufflepuffs or the Slytherins. Um, <laughs> we do get little snippets of we get his biased opinion on what happened, you know, but but we do understand, you know, what he went through and we can see what he went through and we can use that in turn to help other people. You know, we don't want to be like we don't want Dursleys in our lives. We'll get no. rid of that. <laughs> we don't want that, you know, and. I, no matter what the argument, whether it was because Harry was a horcrux or whatever you want to say, we don't want Dursleys in our lives. And so I think it's it's good for us to be able to get out and talk about this stuff. And um, and especially, and I know it's fiction, but it's it means so much to have Harry Potter, who grew up with them, as terrible as they were, turn out as such a good person. And he's kind of dumb, okay, <laughs> but <laughs> but he's a very good person. He always does, you know, what he sees as the right thing. And in the end, he's just a just and loyal and brave person. And you know, I applaud him for that. And I think, given that he had the history that he had, he could have easily turned bad, easily turned evil, been, you know, the world hates me, it's out to get me, and had this attitude. And instead, he turned around and did everything he could to help other people. I think, in particular, about when he buried Dobie or Dobby. I don't ever say that right. I'm so sorry for anyone that says Dobby or Dobby. I'm just going to say the elf. How about? Um, <laughs> but when he when he buried him, like he did that by hand. He didn't want to use magic. He wanted to do that by hand. And like that just that speaks to who he was. And you know, if he can come from what he came from and been who he was, all of us can do the same thing. But I do think there's a big part of a big part of Harry Potter being who he was was the people that he had around him, Ron and Hermione and Hagrid and the Weasleys and, you know, everybody that he had around him. So I think it's it's ultimately so important to surround yourselves with good people and people that can try to understand what you're going through and they'll help you. Yeah. A lot of times those people end up being other Harry Potter fans, which is so wonderful. Um, and I think that's great because we can, we understand each other. Yeah. Yeah. On a very, uh, it's it's one of the strangest things about doing the podcast is, you know, speaking to somebody uh, on the internet for the first time and feeling a, you know, you feel a connection with one another because you know this person has this story laced into their lives just like I do. Um, it's a very strange and wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, strange and wonderful. You described it so well. Strange and wonderful. <laughs> It is absolutely both of those things. It's curious, as Ollivander might say. Very curious, yes. <laughs> um, so, Benjamin, we're coming close to the end of our time. Um, 
And I just want to know if you have any other final words of wisdom, advice, or anything else that you'd like to share. I do. Um, I know one thing, and one thing my wife and I have talked about, especially recently, is you know the book is nearing completion, and um, she's talked to me about you know kind of my role in this. I I have OCD, but I am not OCD. Um, I have depression. I am not depression, and I think there's a huge difference. Um, I know I worked in special ed for a long time as an aide and and whatever. You know, I did that for about ten years, and I got to work with kids with autism and Down syndrome and all kinds of things, and it was so fun, so rewarding. And especially when I started working in that field, we were changing, transitioning to people first language. Instead of saying that autistic kid, it was that child with autism. And at first, people, you know, people were very resistant, and it sounded so hectic and weird. No, autistic it sounds so much. It's so much easier to say, but no, it's a person who has autism, um, because being autistic doesn't define you. You know, you have autism. You're a person who has something, and so I think. Um, being able to understand that that's, you know, the people that have mental illness, we are not our mental illness. And other people may think, you know, oh, you're, you're depressed. Well, yes, I have depression. I'm not a depressed. I, I have OCD. It does not have me, you know, like I, I am in control. Ultimately, I'm the one that gets to decide what my thoughts are going to be. And I've gotten to that point by doing a lot of therapy and having a lot of help and making tons of mistakes along the way. Um, but I know thinking along those lines is really going to help. Um, one last thing I guess I would say, just another plug for therapy, please go talk to someone. Um, I know in my case, and probably I'll get emotional and I'm sorry, but in my case, if I had just gone to my wife and said something to her right away, said, listen, this is what's going on. I need help right now. I could have avoided a whole lot of of stuff. Now, I am where I am now, partly because of that, but it would have been so much easier if I had just gone to her and said, listen, this is what's going on, please help me. And she would have. Um, and so I know everyone is going through something. Everyone has something that's that's weighing them down, that's bothering them. Talk to someone about it. Don't let it be something you keep in the closet. You know, Keep it, get it out, get it out. Someone who will listen. And if you find someone and you tell them and they won't listen, find someone else. Because I guarantee there's always going to be someone out there who will listen to you. And not only will listen, but it's going to help you. And I think in the end, a lot of us just need someone to say, hey, this is what's going on. You don't need to say anything back to me. You don't need to text me back or do anything. I just need you to know this is going on with me because it'll help. Um, I know in group therapy in particular, the first time I went, I was really anxious because I was like, group therapy, like we're going to stand around a fire and sing and dance. Like, what are we doing in group therapy? And I remember that first session, we all got together and everyone one by one went around the room. There's about six of us and two psychologists. We went around the room and said, this is what's going on with me. And I, for the first time in my life, I felt like, oh my goodness, they get it. They get what's going on. It was different stuff than I was dealing with, but they understand me. And so there's power in someone who understands what you're going through. But I also feel like, and this is a hard one, but you have to love yourself. Even if you feel like there's nothing for you to love, if you feel like you're completely worthless, you're worth far more than you give yourself credit for. And this I know because this is something I still really struggle with. I really struggle with feelings of failure, with feelings of self-worth. I'm a successful 39-year-old, and 
I'm going through a lot of this. This is one of the big things that I'm working on is just finding time to say, you know what? I appreciate this about myself. I love this about myself. And even if you can only find one thing worth loving about you, love that thing and build on that thing because that will lead you to greater happiness. So I think just please don't keep it in. Please go find someone to talk to because I know it was a mistake I made early on and it's not one that I hope to ever make again. So I know just talking to someone really, really can make a huge difference. You've hit such a trifecta of wonderful wisdom there. Um, Thank you so, so much for sharing that and for everything else you've talked about. Um, I think this has been a really, really wonderful interview. And I think um, your story and what you have learned from your experiences has, um, there's just, I think there's a lot in there for so many people. So I, all I can say is thank you. Uh, thank you for sharing yourself with us. Madison, you're welcome. It was an absolute honor to be on your show. Yes. Well, take care. So, uh, sorry, I mixed like three parts of the end <laughs> up because I've just, I'm feeling so passionate about what you said. <laughs> Man, it sounded good to me. I didn't even notice. That was great. <laughs> That was my interview with Benjamin. Benjamin, thank you again for sharing your story. If any of you would like to read Benjamin's book, you can visit benjaminjamesmarshall.com. We'll have the website linked below and on our social media. I want you all to know how much you mean to me. It means so much to know that you're listening, to see your comments and messages on social media. You matter and you are deeply loved. Thank you for being a part of our Beyond the Veil community. If you'd like to share your story, you can visit our website and fill out our submission form to be a guest on the show. If you'd prefer to share anonymously, you can do that as well, and I'll share your story as a whisper at the end of an episode. Join me next time for another conversation in the headmaster's office. Take care. Take care.